Well, if you'd like to keep that open uh, before you, uh, but before I begin, we shall just say a word of prayer. Father God, we uh, thank you for your words, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, we thank you for uh, the teaching of Christ and all that that means to us. Lord, teach us, I pray, by your Holy Spirit, through the words that I speak this morning. Amen. So, imagine if you had been, uh, well, if you were out and about in the streets of Norwich early in the morning. It's uh, wet and a sort of a cloudy, gloomy day like it is a bit like this morning, and you watch as a, as a beggar uh, begins to set out his stall. You know, he spreads out his blanket on the floor, he settles down his dog uh, next to him, and he uh, places the bowl in front of him, carefully primed with a few coins, uh, ready to receive help from the passing office workers and shop workers as they go their way to work. Uh, at the same time, he's keeping a, 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 a sort of a beady eye out, just in case the, uh, the man in the blue uniform is coming along, who might move him along. I wonder why he does it. What is his motivation? By what rights does he expect to receive any help at all? I wonder what he should ask for. I wonder what should he expect in return. So what is his motivation asking? Well, is he driven by his hunger or by the cold? Is it the fact that some people have nice houses and yachts on the ocean and he doesn't? Or is he asking because other people might be able to feel better about themselves if they give some money to, to him? By what right? Does he expect to receive any help? Does society owe him the help? Should people give it to him just because he apparently has very little? Should it be a law that we should put money in uh, the bowl of anybody who sits on the ground with a dog? What should he ask for? Just a few coins, a sandwich from Greg's Bakery, a meal at Zizzy's in Tombland, the keys to a house perhaps, or the offer of a job. What should he expect in return? How far should he go? Just a small change, or the promise of a fortune to come, or even a blank check made out to him? Or perhaps he should expect a point-blank refusal and a cold glance as people walk by on the other side of the pavement. Well, Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century reformer, his last words in writing were these. He said, we are all beggars. That is true. We are all beggars. So we like to think of ourselves as achievers, as creators, as innovators, movers and shakers, healers, educators, reformers, benefactors, but what we actually are in God's sight is beggars. J.I. Packer makes this point. He says, We have nothing and have never had anything that we have not received, nor have we done anything good apart from God who did it through us. In ourselves we are destitute, bankrupt and impotent, totally dependent on God at every point and in every respect. You see, this is true of our salvation, our pardon for sins, so true also as our justification as persons before God. But it's equally true of everything else that we have in life, whether that's our health, our food, our clothing, our job, our home, family, car, investments in a non-Greek bank. Everything we have comes from God. So before God's throne, we are all beggars. And that's, I think, at the heart of all prayer, which asks for things. We are beggars. 
And what we find is that the same four questions that we applied to our beggar earlier on apply to ourselves as we learn to ask God for things in prayer. So what is our motivation? By what right do we expect to receive any help? What should we ask for? What should we expect? Well, over the next three weeks, uh, as I said, we are starting this short series just from looking at some of the parables that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. And I hope that over the course of the three weeks, we will teach, or Jesus will teach us some of the answers to those four questions. But this morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 11, and this parable of the man who needed to borrow some bread. It's page 1042, if you don't still have it. Now, I have uh, very few memories of Sunday school when I was growing up. Um, Not exact memories, anyway. As you know, I grew up and I went to church in St. Andrews in Eton down the road. Um, But I don't remember much about what I was taught. But I do remember one day when I was being taught this parable. It was up on the stage in the church hall down there. And I remember that it left me feeling slightly uneasy. You see, read this parable, and at first sight it all appears quite obvious, doesn't it? The man receives an unexpected guest at midnight. He doesn't have any food in the house. So he goes to his friend and he begs him for some food. But the friend answers, uh, is apparently, answer is apparently not unreasonable, is it? Go away. The door is locked. The children are in bed. If you think I'm going to wake them up after getting, spending two hours trying to get them to sleep the night before, you've got to be joking just to get you some bread. And yet Jesus says, because of the man's boldness, or if you look down at the fault notes at the bottom of the NIV, it says persistence. Then he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Which is why Jesus says in verse 9 that we need to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. It's three verbs, all in the uh, present continuous tense. In other words, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking, and things will be given, things will be found, and doors will be opened. Ask, seek, knock, pray boldly, pray persistently. And they say, don't they, if you can't be persistent in prayer for something you really want, then you don't want it very much. Okay then, so that's the basic message, the message received. That's the main point of this parable. We must be bold or persistent in prayer. And if ever you have ever had the experience of asking your husband to put up some shelves or asking your children to tidy their rooms, then you will fully understand the principle of being persistent. But what does that leave you thinking about God. There he is. He's lying in bed. He doesn't want to get up. He can't be bothered to inconvenience himself. But okay, all right. If, if you men and women can build up some superhuman strength to go on persisting and being bold in prayer, then I might find my way to stirring myself and sorting you out with whatever it is you need. Is that how you think that prayer works? Is that what God is really like? Is it any surprise that I ended up feeling a little bit uneasy about this parable when I was nine years old at St. Andrews? Some of us maybe are reluctant to come to God in prayer because of this, because we're afraid that we're going to get the same response that the man got in verse 7. Don't bother me. Is a God, a God who doesn't want to be bothered. Some of us, I think, expect that, don't we? I mean, I sometimes perhaps have been praying for something for very uh, many years. And it seems like the, uh, the only answer we've received in life is, uh, go away, don't bother me. 
Well, if that's you, then let's take a closer look at what Jesus is saying here, because culturally and historically, we are living in different times. And sometimes you just have to take a step back and we have to try and work out what was going on in the minds of the disciples as Jesus told this parable. You see, the whole scenario that Jesus sets up here is preposterous, it's ludicrous. You see, friendship in their culture was similar to ours. Being a friend to somebody meant, uh, as now, involves some kind of exchange. I mean, if you invite somebody to be best man at your wedding, then there's always an awkward moment if they invite somebody else to be their best man at their wedding, isn't there? If we're sufficiently good friends, uh, with, uh, if you're sufficiently good friends with me to lend me uh, your car, then it'd be only right that I should lend you my lawnmower or whatever you need. And back then, it wouldn't be uncommon for a traveller to arrive late at night. It meant that they avoid, avoided walking in the heat of the day. Um, and it's perfectly reasonable for them to expect to receive a meal when they arrived at their friend's house unexpectedly. The problem was, the practical problem was, that the, ba- the bread was baked daily in the morning. So it's perfectly natural, if you weren't expecting anybody to come to that night, to scoff all your food before then, to scoff all your bread before the night came. But that's no problem, because you have friends in the village, so you just pop next door, and you call through the window or the door or whatever, and you say, hey, Charlie, got any bread? And Jesus starts to lay it on thick at this point in the parable. He says, Charlie says, no, the door's already locked. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if they were first-century Jewish peasants, they'd be living in a single room, and they'd be sleeping on a raised platform, a slightly raised platform at the end of the room, and they'd be sharing it with a whole bunch of farm animals. So getting up to get them some bread would have been a lot less disturbing than whatever the goats were getting up to during the course of the night. Now, the disciples would be thinking, well, of course the friend would get up and help the man out. That's what friends are for, both then as now. What a rotten friend. And what's more, they would understand why the man goes on persisting so boldly. Why? Because the man has a real, real need. You see, hospitality was such a sacred thing in their culture. You see, you looked after people who were on the road, and you provided whatever they needed. Three rolls of bread was, was very little. It was not an excessive ask. It was just the right amount for an evening meal. And because hospitality was so strong in that culture, when somebody arrives at the doorstep, the man was actually obliged to go and knock on his friend's door. If it had been me, I would have sent Sylvia, of course, because she's much better at this sort of situation than I am. I, I would have been saying, Sylvia, could you just pop next door and ask for some bread? They've been a bit difficult. I'll just take the guest suitcase up to the spare room. But this man understood that this lack of bread was not just his own problem. If he failed to provide, the whole community would be implicated in this sense of the shame of the inhospitality. So the man would have knocked on every door in the village if he had failed to get bread at the first house, just because of the shame that it would have brought on the community if this man would have been left without an evening meal. And that's why the word in verse 8, variously translated as bold or persistent, causes the biblical translators so much, so much difficulty. Because it's difficult to capture this very real sense that the word contains of persistent, bold, longing to avoid shame. It's a shame avoidance technique, which is what I think the disciples would have understood at the time. So Jesus says in verse 8, if he won't get up because he's a friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. In other words, because of the man's reminder of the shame that we brought upon the whole 
not only from the house of the man himself, but the house of his friend and the house of the whole community as well. He will give him all that he needs. So the main point of this parable is about mechanics of prayer or how we should pray. We should pray boldly and persistently. We ought to pray like beggars, like the beggars we are, totally dependent on God for all our spiritual and physical needs. But it also, this parable, gives us a hint as to the motivation of our prayers. You see, it teaches us negatively that we should pray, we should pray to avoid God's shame. Put positively, we should be motivated to pray by a desire to see God glorified. In other words, it teaches us what it means to pray what we prayed earlier on during the service and what Jesus has just taught them in verse 2 of this very same chapter. Hallowed be your name, the second line of the Lord's Prayer. We pray so that God's name might be glorified or hallowed. We say, may you, God, be always and everywhere honoured, exalted, magnified, glorified and praised for all that you are and all that you do. And this desire for God's glory is the motivation which underlies everything in the Lord's Prayer, including verse 3, which says, give us each day our daily bread. Do you see? Three rolls will do. Three rolls for your glory, God. It's just what we need. You see, ultimately, the motivation of our prayers is not our selfish concerns or even the needs of our friends. The motivation for our prayers is God's glory. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. When Abraham, in Genesis chapter 18, was concerned for his nephew Lot and his family who had settled in the city of Sodom, he asked God, doesn't he, to save the city. He says, if 50, if 40, 30, 20, 10 godly people are found to be living in this city, now, obviously thinking about Lot and his household all the way through, all through this prayer. But Abraham absorbs the sort of the I want save Lot in his praying, and he absorbs it into this concern for God's glory as a just judge. So he goes on and he says, suppose there are just 50 righteous women in the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? Far be from you, God, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put righteous to death with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? See, he's praying for God's glory in that situation. He's praying that God's righteousness and justice will be made known. Or take Daniel in chapter 9, who prays, For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Delay not, for your own sake, O my God, because your people and your city are called by your name. You see, the, the temple is lying desolate, it's ruins, and it's bringing shame upon God. So Daniel prays, for your own sake, O Lord, do something about this problem. Now, of course, in practice, our motivations, the motivation of our hearts can sometimes get uh, a little bit murky, can't they? And in the book of James, uh, James writes to a church which is full of quarrels and divisions, uh, which were caused by, James says, the desires that battle within you. So James says, when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, the people in that church hadn't got this idea of asking for God's glory. They were still asking for the desires that were battling within their hearts. And James said to them, therefore submit yourselves to God. So why do we pray? Do we pray so that we might get just what we want? Do we pray for our friends to be healed 
or that we might get the job we've been desperately waiting for many years to get. Do we pray that our children might receive a good education or our mothers might be well looked after? There's nothing wrong with these things in themselves, but underlying all of those prayers, our motivation should not be the comfort or well-being of our friends, but our motivation should be God's glory. And we pray boldly that the shame of unmet needs will be avoided. Put it positively, we pray boldly that God's name will be glorified. That's our motivation. But what about our second point about praying boldly? By what right do we expect to receive anything? And what about this friend who can't be bothered to get out of bed? Is God really like him? Well, no, because Jesus is deliberately setting up a contrast here. You see, even with our best friends, there's a a limit to friendship, isn't there? And yet my children, when they ask for things, they treat me as their, obviously, as their father. They treat me as the, uh, the original bottomless pit of infinite resources. Dad, can we go to the England-Spain game at Wembley next Saturday? Dad, can we get Sky Television? Dad, can we buy a netbook? Can we? They should treat me like that. They should treat me like that because they know that I'm their father. And I would willingly, lovingly give them everything they would need and is good. With great joy, I'd give it to them. If only I were a bottomless pit and they had infinite resources, which I don't. So what is the basis of our prayer? By what right do we actually receive any help at all? Well, we need to go back to the first line of the Lord's Prayer in verse 2, and the one word, Father. You see, Jesus makes it clear that we pray to one who is so much more than the friend in the parable. And he's so much more than any earthly father. When you pray, Jesus says, say, Father. Skip down to verse 11 with me. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, I might well be the exception here that proves the rule, because I have a morbid fear of fish. So if my four-year-old asked me for a fish, I might rather give him a snake instead. But then again, I don't particularly like those either, so I might give him a guinea pig after all. But I think I'm missing the point, aren't I? But you get it, don't you? You see, if I did have a son who was really into making things, which I don't, they might ask me for one of those little sort of uh, carpentry sets, you know, that, that made out of wood and looked very nice, have a lightweight hammer and some nails so you can sort of start hammering things in. And I wouldn't think to myself, would I? Well, you know, that's not very exciting, is it, really? How about I get him one of those nail guns? Well, how about a chainsaw? That'd be much better. I mean, what fun could he have with a chainsaw? Here's some marigold, son. That'll protect you. See what you can make with those trees over there. I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about, does it? So if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Because I'm Lucas's father, I'm not going to give him bad things, am I? No, Lucas can expect some good Christmas presents from me this year. There'll be no chainsaws, no snakes, no scorpions in his stocking. If we can expect that from our earthly fathers, who are frail and imperfect, then how much more, because we have been adopted as his children by our loving Father in heaven, How much more are we going to receive good gifts from him? 
And that's the basis of all our prayers. It is this, it is our relationship to God as our loving Father. So we go on asking, we go on seeking, we go on knocking. We do that boldly, we do that with persistence. Not because our Father will not meet our needs, not because our Father is reluctant to get out of bed and to find us some bread, but actually, purely because he is our loving Father and he will meet our needs. Prayer takes place within the intimacy of the family. So we can be bold in our prayers, as my son is bold with me when he asks for things, because we are asking our Father. And God, our Father, will give us good gifts. He will give us the Holy Spirit, the the source of all good gifts. But we'll come back to that next week, as we come to look at what we should ask for and what we should expect in our prayers. So in conclusion today, Jesus reminds us to be bold and persistent in prayer, like the beggars that we all are before God. Ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. But you know, our motivation in asking for these things so boldly is God's glory and honour. Hallowed be your name. And the basis of our prayers, by what right shall we expect any help at all, is simply that we are God's children. He is our fatherer, and he is a bottomless pit of infinite resources. Let us pray. Lord, many of us struggle with prayer. It's probably a lifetime's work to get to grips with praying to you, and many of us will not complete it. And yet, Lord, you encourage us to come to you boldly and persistently to ask you for things, to ask you for things as our Heavenly Father, our loving Father, who has so much to offer us. Lord, may we get it into our heads, may we get it right, to ask for things for your glory. May we seek your glory in everything that we do, in everything that we ask for, in everything that we want to be as people living in this world for you. In the name of Christ. Amen.